it can't <clears throat> it can't be said enough how important even a single moment of mindfulness is on our lives and on the lives of people around us so even to take a few moments to appreciate what you've been doing this weekend even though it, it seems in some ways uh, short as it begins to come to an end uh, it seemed probably like one of the longest weekends in your life when you first began uh, but in the middle of it perhaps there were moments where you felt uh, just for a single mindful pause in the usual churning of mental physical phenomena a kind of peace a kind of well-being and perhaps it seemed that the the energy it took to to sustain it for that moment uh, was was worth it that it seemed to be a, a kind of peace not dependent on anything outside of itself the practice of the Buddha's teachings teach us a great deal more than just concepts about ourselves <coughs> or about life meditation is the cultivation of the mind and heart the the meaning of meditation in the Buddhist Pali language uh, bhavana comes from the root bu and bu means uh, to bring into being so the practice is the cultivation of bringing into being uh, awakening qualities of the heart that help to turn our lives into a path of awakening a path leading to love and understanding leading to the end of suffering and a path it turns out as we gain more uh, understanding and more compassion a path that is imbued with happiness and joy it doesn't have to seem like the struggle that it often seems when we are uh, when it feels like we're going uphill in the beginning mindfulness is the primary tool of this Buddhist path middle path of love and understanding and it's supported by energy Dhamma energy it's very valuable to come to an understanding of what this energy is because if, uh, if we don't understand it we're liable to use energy in a, an unskillful way in an unproductive way in a way that drains the energy rather than preserves the energy and yet it's a very powerful energy once the Bodhisattva or the Buddha to be in a former life was born as a prince and when he reached a certain age his mother the queen sent him off to a school the best in the, of the times and there he learned all the arts of serving the people and he also became very skilled in the martial arts archery and swordsmanship the use of the club and the spear and the shield and when he finished his time there his master told him you're very gifted see that you use these gifts for the good of the many and he he named him Prince Five Weapons and said you're ready to go home now he was now uh, he'd been there for some years he was now about 18 and he set off on a long journey home he went up over uh, mountains and through valleys and across deserts and deep dark forests and forded streams and at last he came upon a the a area that was a, a forested area that blocked his way between where he was and his home kingdom and there there were uh, soldiers guarding the pathway with a huge log covering the entrance and he said well what's this and these soldiers said well you can't go in here why not and the soldier said well there's this big ugly ogre monster in there and he's been eating up people who go through or you know you wouldn't want to look at them the ones who did make it through and the Prince Five Weapon said what I've been 
cultivating all these skills for the past years to do my best to help out people and to trust myself only to come to this? No, sir, he said. He says, I'm going through. And he hopped right over the logs and disappeared into the forest before the soldiers could stop him. And he went down the trail, and the further down he went, the darker it got, the narrower the trail, and all these strange, eerie sounds came about. It got darker and darker, and suddenly there was a huge crunch as tall 60, 70-foot trees were smashed down in the wake of this appearing monster. And the monster was just matted with thick, sticky hair. His eyes were like huge saucers. His ears looked like cauliflowers. And his teeth were all rotting and with holes in it, and birds were nesting in there. Uh, and his, his, his fingers were, uh, were ended in long claws. Uh, and his breath just stank. <laughs> and he said, well, who are you? And Prince Five Weapons said, well, I'm Prince Five Weapons, and I'm on my way home to help my mom rule the kingdom. And this sticky hair monster, who we'll call Sticky Hair Monster, <laughs> said, no one comes through this forest without my permission, and usually no one ever gets out. And the Prince Five Weapons says, well, no one tells me that I can't go through this forest when I'm on my way to do good for the many. So you better stand back or these arrows will come flying to your heart. And the uh, sticky hair monster let out a laugh and, and uh, in his, in his, uh, the stench of his breath alone knocked our Prince Five Weapons back ten paces. So he pulled out his arrow and shot one right to the heart of sticky hair monster. But it just went in a few inches and then stuck and fell loose, not penetrating any further. And within seconds, he had drawn out and shot 50, all arrows in, the, in his quiver. But they all, wherever they went, they just fell into the hair and the matted hair and stuck and then just fell limp. So our sticky hair monster then shook like a wet dog and the arrows went flying all over the place. And our prince five weapons had to protect himself with his shield. But our bold, our bold Prince Five Weapons thought to himself, well, I'm good with arrows, but I'm even better with my spear. So he lunged back his spear and charged it right at the throat of the sticky hair monster. But it, too, went in just a few feet and then dangled. He thought to himself, well, there was none who could ever best me with swordsmanship. So I'll cut one of his main arteries on his leg. And he went in for a thrust, and it went in, but it too got stuck and trapped in the thick matted hair by a shin. And then he thought, well, I know how powerful this old knotted wood club is, and I know how, how strongly I can bring it down on his foot, and that'll bring him to his knees, and then I'll do more damage after that. So he took his club and smashed down, but it just bounced up and stuck and went up and down a few times, and he couldn't get it off. And there he was, without his arrows, without his spear, without his sword, without his club. So then he thought, hmm, well, there's nothing that I trust more than my uh, uh, fist, my right fist. So he came swinging around to hit the lower part of the leg, give him a good Charlie horse, <laughs> but it got stuck. And then his left, he thought, well, that's even stronger than my right. And then a roundhouse kick with his right leg, and it got stuck. And then, of course, his left leg. And all he had left is he thought to himself, well, I better use my head. <laughs> so like a great sumo wrestler, he just gave a good knock with his head, and it too got stuck. So there he was, all stuck. But not once did he ever seem to shy away from his mission, from his task. And so the sticky hair monster thought to himself, gee, there's something about this, this uh, young prince. He seems unafraid. He seems lion-like in his courage. I better be careful. I better ask him a few questions. So he unstuck the little prince and said, <clears throat> say there, prince, you wouldn't happen to have uh, some kind of power that I don't know about, would you? And our bold prince said, I certain, most certainly do. And if you were to eat me in this moment, you would be very sorry. For I carry 
the invisible but all-powerful sword of love and compassion and wisdom. And I'd slice myself out and you'd be really sorry. And with this, he saw from the eyes and the look of the Prince Five Weapons that indeed this was uh, a being of great courage. And something shifted in his heart. And he said, well, you know, I wasn't even planning on eating even a pea size of you. And in fact, I'm going to set you free today. And our Prince Five Weapons says, well, I'm not going to set you free. How do you think you got in this miserable position? You've been terrorizing people, and this forest is dark and scary. No one can get through. If you continue this way, you're just going to move from darkness to darkness and bring light, no light to yourself, let alone to anyone else around. So I don't set you free. I leave on only one condition, that you begin to change your ways, that you bring uh, safety and you bring service and help to this area. Well, I will, said Sticky Hair Monster. I promise I shall. See that you do, for I shall be back to check on you. And our Prince Five Weapons went on home, and soon he became the king, and known as uh, King Five Weapons, opener of the ways. And he did check back on his uh, monster friend. And indeed, he had changed for the better. He opened the trails and cut back the, uh, the forest a bit to let in light and planted flowers, protected people from, from uh, uh, carnivorous beings and so forth, and helped people across dangerous streams. And he became a better monster. <laughs> and it's said that uh, over many lives, he became many different beings, a bear, a rabbit, a deer, a monkey. And soon he became human beings. And in those lives, he also kept moving toward more and more light. And even today, he's said to be living somewhere here in Barrie. <laughs> Comes to meditation retreats. This Dhamma energy is we call courageous energy, or strength of heart. It's, it's known as the heroic effort, or the effort of a hero or heroine needed to walk this path, needed to do this great work of opening, because again and again we face our inner ogres, our inner demons. We face the, all the distractions, the fears, the desires, the confusion, the doubt, the anxieties. In its many forms we find this ogre. And the approach, of course, is to have this courageous energy that doesn't back down uh, and yet approaches with great compassion, with that possibility of, of transformation. Aung San Suu Kyi, who is the leader of the democracy movement uh, in Burma and human rights, uh, Nobel Peace Prize winner of 1991, She's considered by many to be a great heroine, and not only in Burma, but around the world. And yet she doesn't like to be called such, because the, the word connotes a kind of grandstanding, being separate from others. And she's all too quick to defer her, uh, her greatness to all those around her, in fact, to the people of Burma <coughs> themselves. So I was uh, discussing this with her when I was in Burma earlier this year and asked her if she knew the meaning of the term uh, wiriya. And she knew it as energy. Wiriya is a Buddhist Pali term, meaning this, uh, this uh, great Dhamma energy. But I elaborated that actually it's defined as the courageous, energy that is mustered for not only one's own liberation, one's own awakening, but for the benefit of all. And she says, that I can, uh, that I like, that I understand, that I accept, I'll call myself uh, uh, a courageous person, not a 
not, not a hero or a heroine, but a courageous person. Because as we begin to practice, we get the sense that this is not a practice uh, that is selfish. That in fact it is a practice of selflessness. Since it benefits and frees not only ourselves, but has a profound effect on those all around us. That we, that we work in, this, in these seemingly often uh, alone moments of awareness without any real verbal or eye contact with others. But we, the effects and the fruits have great benefits, which many of you are commenting today. You start to feel a kind of pervade, a pervading, greater pervading peace and sense of being and comfort, although living in such close quarters. This Dhamma energy is also what makes possible the mindfulness. That it takes a, this energy to be focused in each moment in order to completely and unconditionally open up to things as they are in each moment. Without judging, without comparing, without um, evaluating, without the need to do anything about what does arise. That takes a great courage a great fearlessness and the quality of course of this courageous energy and mindfulness is a real fearlessness. Suchi was, was telling me that you know, earlier in the day some Senate staffers had come and uh, tried to speak to her about the value of, of sanctions against Burma that it, uh, perhaps it would actually hurt the people of Burma if there wasn't the presence of uh, democratic countries doing business in Burma, that, that good might spread from that. And uh, she, of course, doesn't think that is true at this time and felt that it's not the way to go. And so the Senate staffers were saying, well, you know, it looks very much like uh, uh, business is going to continue. And what if, you know, what if you are, what if you stand alone in this view? What if the rest of the world, the Western countries and so forth, and the other Asian countries don't take this position, continue to invest and do business? How are you going to feel? You know, won't you be afraid being alone? And Sue immediately said, why should I be afraid? She said, if you believed in something, knew it to be true from the depth of your being, would you be afraid? of doing it, of taking that stand, of acting that way. She said the person, the woman from the Senate staffer didn't answer, couldn't answer that. And she said, I am not afraid. She said, if I'm the last one in the world, uh, I would stand alone in what I see is right, and what I feel is right. I would take that path. That's, this is the courage of uh, the courageous hero or heroine, this courageous energy of, of wiria. And it's what is the basis for all of our practice. The characteristic of this Dhamma energy is enduring patience and acceptance. Because it is the, the, the courage and willingness to face all the steep slopes, to face the ogres, to face even if we're the only one who truly believes that something is right, uh, to face all opposition. When we're exhausted, when we feel withered, uh, when our sense of struggle seems to come to an impasse, there's always a way to reach in and lift out this quality of Dhamma energy, this courageous energy to find the strength that refreshes the heart and helps us bear with the path that we have to take, even if we feel at times very alone doing it. Lawrence, Lawrence Vanderpost once wrote, often in my life I have found that the one thing that can save is the thing which appears most to threaten. In peace and war I have found that frequently, naked and unashamed, one has to go down into what one most fears. And in that process, 
from somewhere beyond all conscious expectation comes a saving flicker. A flicker of light that even if it does not produce the courage of a hero can at any rate enable a trembling mortal to take one step further. This energy is shaped by compassion and by skillful means. As we see the situation of suffering in ourselves or in others, we're moved to take a path of awakening, to awaken out of our spiritual slumber, to do that in which one feels healed and empowered, liberated. And we do this with the stewardship of skillful means. Skillful means means the wise discernment of the use of techniques, traditions, teachers, how to walk the path, how to be skillful in this path, how when to go forward, when to back off, how to deal with the inner ogres, for example, how to find our stride when it feels like we're struggling uphill to find our second wind. Sometimes in practice it begins to feel like things heat up. The quality of energy is what is often identified as the uh, heating factor, this quality of mind uh, that increases uh, vibration, like heat increasing the vibration of a material object. Heat makes things softer, more flexible. So the heat of energy combined with continuous mindfulness begins to make our mind feel more supple, more fluid, more agile. And in this is the power to transform the very deep, rigid, hard, uh, congealed conditionings of the mind. When we look in the mind and feel where it is we get hooked or stuck or contracted, the, the texture of that quality of consciousness often feels sharp, and hard, rigid. So think of this energy, this Dhamma energy and mindfulness as being that quality that softens. We call it in the Buddhist Pali, atapa, atapa. And in fact, that very same quality in ancient Indian ascetics called tapas were the uh, uh, great powers that were developed, the heat powers. And in some Tibetan sects today use that where they have to go out in snow and sit nearly naked in snow and stay warm or melt the snow around them part of their uh, initiation. Uh, as a mental quality, it starts to melt these conditionings and these hard hindrances of the mind. The ill will, the excessive desire, restlessness, worry, doubt, and so forth. It also begins to melt the illusion of solidity. Not only the fixations of mind, but the sense of there being a solid separate ego entity. <coughs> the interesting thing about this quality of energy combined with mindfulness is that it does not require a, a strenuous, striving attitude of mind. In fact, it mostly requires one to be completely relaxed. One of the images I like the most that I've seen depicting a, a mindful uh, pose is in, is in Upper Burma at this monastery called the, um, uh, the Mingun Monastery, where the famous Mingun Sayadaw lived, died some years ago. And in the, in the, in the monastery there, there's all these paintings on the wall, those little descriptions underneath them in the Burmese language. 
And one of them that, that I love that strikes me, it shows him, uh, he'd gone out one day uh, with his driver to go accept dana, that is his noon meal from some village. But the truck broke down. They're way out in the middle of nowhere. So the picture shows the, the truck in the background uh, with the hood up, the painting, and the, the driver is bent over inside trying to fix the motor. <coughs> Apparently they had been, it was broken for five, six, seven hours, just most of the day. No food, no nothing. And the Mingun Saira is under a tree, kind of lying back in repose, his, head, his arms behind his head, holding his head up, just sort of watching the spectacle, completely relaxed. And the caption is that under any circumstances, one can be relaxed in mindfulness. So there he is, this old Saira. He may at that time have been close to 90, just kind of laying back seven, eight hours while his attendant is working on the car. But it's no problem, absolutely no problem to him. He's, that the, the only real break there is, is mindfulness itself, because one is in such repose, so relaxed. All the mental and physical toxins just streaming out. We start to learn that we don't have to get anywhere, become anything, or attain something. That the, the energy is guided, as I said, by the energy and mindfulness is guided by both compassion and skillful means. That the approach to our experience is one of deep caring and kindness. And so therefore the skillful means or the methods we use are colored by that. You know, being at ease, being gentle with oneself and regulating the energy to be stepped up are toned down as necessary, that we work within our own depth, not push beyond our boundaries with that. And even accepting the arisings of all of our stuff, our past patterns, seeing that they are the very material and means out of which we awaken. They're not a problem. We use whatever situation, our, uh, our uh, angry patterns, our fearful patterns, our judging patterns, by being aware, by having the energy to be present with them, and that's, this is key, by staying anchored in the present moment and just seeing them, they, be, they actually become the definition out of which we awaken more. Not unlike the bonsai plant, where its very limitations give it its power, its beauty, its depth. So too, we begin to regard all our conditioning, all our limiting patterns as being the very thing that we work with, out of which we awaken. The kind of energy that supports the mindfulness practice is a tireless kind of energy, and it requires a tireless energy to be present aware of the difference between the aliveness of being in the present and the enormous consumption of energy that's required to stay closed off, to stay shut down, to stay and feel separate from experience. That really is where we feel a withering of energy, a loss of energy. This, the Dhamma energy with mindfulness is one of energy preservation, where we can keep reaching down and feel this endless source, this deep well of courageous energy and strength of heart. So with this energy as support, translated in practice as the right effort each moment, which we have to keep noticing. Sometimes 
it's too much effort and we feel exhausted or we feel like we're pouncing on experience or we're trying to grab onto it or we're pushing things away. And sometimes the energy isn't enough. We're off drifting and dreaming and not meeting the present moment. So it takes a, a consistency or a constancy in adjustment or modulation. Mindfulness is attuning to what is. It's not reflecting on what has already passed. It's not anticipating what has not yet arisen. Mindfulness is that present time awareness that is attuning to just what's occurring here and now. So we create this space of a meditation retreat. We call it sacred or transformative space. And we learn even to rejoice in the setting of limits that we have, that we've committed to, the reduced circumstances where we're not communicating or reading or writing or doing those distracting things because something happens that helps and supports the silence when we don't do those things. And then we can begin to bring mindfulness to our experience through our meditation. Traditionally, is taught the four foundations of mindfulness. Mindfulness of body, that is breath and body sensations, body experience, feelings, feelings of pleasantness or unpleasantness, are neither pleasant or unpleasant regarding both the body and mind states, emotions. Body, feelings, uh, the mind or consciousness itself. We begin to learn about how how, how the mind is. What is the nature of mind? How do we know it? We usually know it as it's colored by different mental states or thoughts. Colored by attachment or fear or ill will <laughs> or confusion or colored by generosity, contentment, loving kindness, compassion, clarity. We start to learn a lot about how the mind works and in the fourth foundation, all the specific mental components of consciousness. And we've talked about a bit about the hindrances and, uh, and the awakening states of mind, uh, as well as all other experience, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting. So it is the entirety of our experience that is our field of meditation. And we start with a small area. And we get a certain mastery uh, around our primary anchor of the breath or the supporting anchors of the body or sounds. And as we gain some mastery with that, mastery means that we start to be able to be with it, to attune with a non-judging awareness to things as they are, to the sensations of our body as they are, or sounds as they are. And then when the mind starts to be a little more focused, collected, non-distracted, we move into these other fields quite naturally, open up to feelings arising with experience, to, to, to consciousness and all the mental states and the fields of experience, the extensions of mind are seeing and hearing, smelling, tasting, touch sensations, and so forth. So there's a, <clears throat> there's a deep value in that initial setting of the limits and gaining the power and energy and awareness from being primarily with the primary anchor and then opening up to more of a um, choiceless awareness or what we call six-sense door awareness. The quality of the mindfulness changes and becomes more subtle with more practice. It's very hard to describe this mindfulness. You can say a little bit about what it does, but we can only really know mindfulness in time with wisdom. Because it's not a thought. It's subtler than thought. It's pre-symbolic. It's before thought in the conceptual process. Therefore, it's a pre-verbal awareness. 
So to try to describe it, either to ourselves in thought or conceptually in a book or in a talk, we're already ascribing thought to it. So it's very important to understand this because we need to let go of, of trying to conceptualize it and identify what it is. True moments of mindfulness are, are light and energetic. They have no preferences. It is, mindfulness doesn't care if experience is pleasant or painful. It's not trying to get or get rid of anything. It's not even trying to get anywhere. As soon as it does any of that, it, it adds to it the, the ponderance, the weight of thought. And therefore, one leaves the present moment. Is caught up in uh, discursive mind, comparing or judging, evaluating and so forth. And none of those are mindfulness. When that happens, we just notice that. We become aware of judging or comparing or evaluating. And come back again, just to relax back into that pre-verbal, energetic presence of mind. So subtle and so elusive, we can't grab onto it. The moment we do, it's gone. It slips like mercury through the fingers. We can, again and again, relax back into it. And just keep that energy up, moment to moment, that energetic presence. An example is given of how mindfulness works. It's, it's uh, uh, if one compares it to the, a cork and a stone that's cast into a stream. The awareness that's like a cork when put into the stream just floats along the surface and is carried by the currents and the eddies and the movement of the stream. Whereas the stone, the, the pure uh, mindfulness that's like the stone sinks right into the heart of the stream. And this mindfulness does just that. It sinks right into the heart of the moment-to-moment changing nature or flow of our experience, to know it from within. And that's why the encouragement, for example, when we're with our anchor, say, at the abdomen, that we try to feel the breath from within the breath, not from our head, which is likely then to be uh, conceptual to feel the body from within the body, not being registered through thought forms in the, in the head, just as it is. The heart of mindfulness carries the essence of the metta-meditation which we've been doing in the afternoon. Because every moment of mindfulness draws with it this compassion or loving-kindness quality, the opposite of aversion or judgment. And that's the effect of feeling connected to experience. That's the effect of feeling an acceptance of experience rather than a resistance or pushing it away. That's the effect of feeling relaxed with our experience, rather than struggling to get something or get rid of something. It's this metta or caring quality aspect of mindfulness. Another very valuable quality of mind that comes along, that's drawn like a magnet with every moment's mindfulness, is, is non-attachment, our wise detachment, where there's a balance of mind that comes from disidentification. That is, the experience does not refer back to some sense of I or me or mine. Rather, it's just experience, following its own lawful nature. Sensations in the body and and thought forms, fear, grief, sadness, joy, calm, enthusiasm, anger, all of these are just 
constituents of experience. They arise due to conditions and they flow by and fall away again. Now, if we're attached to them or identified with them, that's the sense of getting caught up in experience and that's where we create the knots and tangles of the mind or the toxins of the mind. If, however, this, this uh, non-attaching aspect of mindfulness is there, there's an uh, allowing it to be, this stepping back, connected to the experience so we can feel and know fear as fear or uh, happiness as happiness, but, but not identified with it. And that is, it doesn't refer back to I or me or mine. I am not the fear. Fear is not I or me or mine. It's just fear, just sadness, just joy. The combination of this care and detachment helps us to start the mind to be more non-reactive in grasping after what's pleasant or pushing away what's unpleasant. When I was a... um, When I was a... First spent a long period of time in Burma as a, a monk in the monastery. I'd be invited after the, the main meal of the day, which is about 10 or 10.30 in the morning, to my teacher's cottage afterwards. And there we'd have little desserts. And I, I, uh, the first time I went, uh, and they called these gatherings uh, delightful gatherings. But it was anything but delightful to me. Because I sat with all these wizened old abbots, you know, Sayadaws, these old senior monks. They looked like oak trees, just totally rooted, completely at home within themselves and comfortable. And they sit around this table having little teas and delicacies and saying hardly a word, sometimes saying nothing. Or if one of them made some comment, the others would feel no social necessity to respond. You know, so I saw, I saw, I see, well, this is the game, you know, just, just relax, be myself, you know, don't be pretentious. So I would try to be relaxed and try to be unpretentious, you know, and try to be part of the groove, you know, with them. And it was disastrous. Within minutes, I'd just be sweating in terror. <laughs> and my mind would even be sweating more. And you'd see, it's like a, 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 much like a Japanese tea ceremony, you know, without all the formal ritual. It's more relaxed, where your tea is empty and someone pours it. If you don't want it, you just put up your hand. You, know, you don't say no, thank you, or you don't really uh, engage them in any social way. Or if the, if the grapes or papaya chunks are, are uh, gone from someone, you offer that to that monk and they accept it or not. Well, I, you know, I'd be so nervous. I'd be pouring the tea and be flowing all over the place in the, in the cup to the monk next to me. Or I'd be trying to very mindfully stab my papaya. And papaya or mango, you know, it's very soft. And there's little hors d'oeuvre forks, only two prongs. And I'd be kind of nervously stabbing it, and it wouldn't stick. I'd be stabbing it too much out of nervousness. So I'd pick it up, and it would plop down to my tea. <laughs> so I felt so foolish and humiliated. I couldn't wait to get out of the delightful gathering. <laughs> this would happen for several days. And then I'd come back, and I saw that they just didn't care. <laughs> they didn't care. You know, it was just, it was fine, I could just be whatever, a new kid on the Buddhist block and a little nervous, but so what? That's who I was. And so I felt this acceptance. I felt this real acceptance and I, you know, I felt a care from them and the detachment that no judgment. And so then I started to relax. And it became a delightful gathering. And it became a metaphor 
for my practice and a metaphor for how to live in life. That care and detachment, that connectedness and acceptance of things as they are, that relaxed quality of being in the moment, and along with the non-judging, disidentification, balance, not needing anything to be different, being okay with things just as they are. What prevents us living in a delightful gathering all the time? The immediate veil over experience, when we, what we come up against and we're trying to be mindful, when we generate this Dhamma energy, this courageous energy to be present, is the embellishment of experience, called sometimes uh, ego proliferation or the fabrication, the, ad- the addition that's put on to the immediacy of things as they are. You know, so for example, you know, Michelle rang the bell last night. What happens when we just listen to pure sound vibration? moments where there is the energetic presence of mind, energy and mindfulness, we are attuning to just pure sound vibration. And it's happening to everyone here. It's the natural, initial response to sense impression. But the very next moment, or even side by side, you can see it happening, are are little thoughts. Ah, nice sounding bell. But Japanese or Burmese, or what's he ringing it for? <laughs> you know, what's the point? What's going to happen next? Those proliferating thoughts that anticipate the next moment, or judge it, or think about it, or what, where was it made, and thinks back. It just falls into the whole conceptual process. And we lose that preverbal, stunning sense of being precisely in the present with what's happening. When we practice in this kind of environment, the kind of mindfulness we need to go back out with tomorrow, again is going to be uh, uh, utilized quite a bit with our conceptual uh, life and more of an engaged mindfulness. But the kind we use when we sit or come to retreat is a non-doing awareness. We're learning how to draw from the stillness and the silence, from the, from the depths of this non-doing awareness. So the paradox of coming to a retreat to kind of do meditation is that we start to learn how to do nothing with full commitment. This is, this is rather startling, you know, because we, we, have, we, we come with our agendas. We want to fix this or get better or get enlightened or get rid of that. But the way to awakening is learning how to rest in this non-doing awareness, how we do nothing with full commitment. And we actually begin to learn how to do this nothing even in our doings in the world. From a place of ease, a rest. This proliferating quality of mind, this uh, self-referencing or embellishment of experience, is the cause for much of our grief in the world and much of how 
we invent this dreamlike quality of life. Because when we're not paying attention, we immediately build upon this proliferation our views of life and therefore our values and therefore how we act in the world. And we really live an interpretation of life rather than live in response to how things are, to actually seeing the nature of things, understanding how things are changing, or having that balance of mind that's non-reactive, that equanimity within which there's enough pausing, enough stillness, we can draw from enough, enough depth of our being uh, to respond more skillfully, to respond out of the motivation of compassion instead of fear or anger or, um, or clinging in our lives. In retreats, often things can get very blown out of proportion. We call it yogi mind. At a retreat that Michelle and I taught a few years ago in Australia, after the Dhamma talk, we came outside and we were looking for a while up at the full moon. And then I, I went in through the, the yogi w walking room because that was the way that I would get to my room. And I thought Michelle was behind me. But she was walking out under the moonlight and came through another door into my room where we would talk for a while and then she'd go up to her room. So I left the door between my room and the walking room open. And I came in, but she didn't come in. And then she just appeared through the other door. And I said, oh, why'd you come in that door? Because I thought she was behind me. I was surprised. And she, she answered me as she was out seeing the moon, but she answered very softly. But I asked her, not you know, particularly softly, I just asked her in my voice, you know, why'd you come in that room? And, and a yogi was coming in the walking room and heard me and thought I was talking to him. Why'd you come in that door? We talked for a few minutes, Michelle went up, I went to bed, you know. Six hours later, about three o'clock in the morning, there's a knock on my door. <laughs> Stephen, are you awake? <laughs> well, not for another four or five hours, but come on in. And he came in and he said, why did you ask me why I came in that door? And I said, I'm so sorry, but I didn't ask you why you came in the door. So for all night, he had just been fretting in this, you know, the poor yogi, in this anxious state that I judged him for some reason, you know. You get very sensitive here. That's this mental pro proliferation. We call it in the Buddhist Pali, papancha mind, papancha, mental fabrication. Opening to what is, is not trying to get or get rid of anything. It's, it's not that if we get rid of pain or fear that we'll come to peace. Because then it would be a dependent peace. We're cultivating a kind of peace that happens in the midst of things as they are. Being at peace with things as they are. Mindfulness begins to correct our misperception of the way we see things. It begins to clear the field of experience and bring it into focus from this papancha mind. All the fabrications, all the elaborations, all the ways we imbue our anxieties and past wounds and conditioning onto the present. Clears so we can see clearly so that wisdom can access things and see. It's not about changing our emotions. Because if it were, we would be bound by the very forces of attachment and aversion that we wish to be free from. So in our practice, with this energy, this courageous energy of, of our Prince Five weapons, or the energy 
of, uh, of a woman such as Aung San Suu Kyi. It often feels like we're walking this path alone. Feels like it even we're amongst many. But soon we have the sense that there, that spiritual awakening is about the difference between being alive or feeling dead or numb to life. That there really is no choice. In those times that we feel alone, like a lonely prince or princess or a lonely warrior, that, that it's okay. That we go that way. And again, we will find that we're uh, among many. We do this deeply inward, sometimes feeling alone practice, together with many others. And that we do it not only for our own benefits, but for the benefit, really, of all living beings everywhere. Begin to see how, how our minds work. Begin to understand both the, the shadow side and the bright side. We take an interest in all the workings, welcome the, the limitations that we feel from our past conditioning as a very means of awakening. I'd like to end with a, a short little anecdote of of how of a natural experience of this preverbal awareness. After teaching a series of retreats in uh, in South Africa some years ago, Michelle and I went to the to a um, game reserve in Botswana, and there was a, a tracker, his name was Lapata, who took us around. Lapata was the land and the trees and the sky and the clouds. He was of this place. And being with him was quite extraordinary, although at first I couldn't figure out why. Because as we went through the bush, he seemed so laid back and relaxed, I couldn't possibly imagine him showing us anything. So I felt like, oh, you know, I guess I'll have to be the great white hunter and take the, uh, the uh, binoculars and search for all the animals, the zebras and wildebeests and giraffes, which were so brilliantly uh, camouflaged in the African bush. I could never find them. <coughs> And we'd be going along and Lapata would be as if he was looking over this way, you know, or talking to Michelle. And then out of the corner of his eye, he'd, he'd see something over there and point. And even then, with the binoculars, it took a minute or two to see this brilliantly camouflaged impala or, or, a, or a zebra come out of the bush. Could not figure out how he was doing that. You know, and I thought, gee, you know, it's this, this must be like Disneyland. He knows where they live, you know. And he's, he's kind of, he's hoodwinking us somehow. And then my mood changed when I, we went out one day and Michelle had this basket of sandwiches and fruit. And at lunchtime, she offered them uh, to Lapata, you know, for, so he could take a sandwich and an apple and an orange. And his endearing unpretentiousness, you know, just swept me away because he grabbed the whole basket thinking it was all for him. <laughs> and I thought, I love this guy. You know? <laughs> and then by the end of the week, it was clear how he was doing this. That he, was, he wasn't looking for any animals. He wasn't looking for the giraffe or the lion or the leopard, or the wildebeest. He was simply extending his senses, his pre-verbal awareness, out over the landscape and noticing any shift in the landscape, in light and shadow, or color and form. So he used a soft gaze of, of, a, of the beginner's mind to kind of gently scan the horizon, the landscape. And then he'd see some form. And then he would see that it was a particular form. 
how mindfulness works. When we're really mindful, we're not seeing anything in particular. We don't hear bell. Mindfulness attunes to sound vibration. Bell comes some moments later as a conceptual identification. So Lapata does precisely what we're trying to do here, to scan the inner <clears throat> landscape with this soft gaze of the beginner's mind and just notice the immediacy of experience in the body, in the mind, and be with things just as they are before they proliferate out into objects that we then need to judge, like, dislike, get or get rid of. Very deep place to live from. Let's sit together for a moment. <clears throat> 